And welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and boy, have we got a doozy for you this week. We're talking with actor, director, teacher, and force of nature, Craig McDonald. Craig has been a theater professional for 40 years, acting and directing in off-Broadway and regional theaters in scores of shows across the country. He started at Ithaca College, Cornell University, Binghamton University, Keene College, and Syracuse University. His newest venture is teaching a scene study class for the Actors Workshop of Ithaca. We stopped off at Craig's house where he welcomed us with coffee and some very delightful muffins. The conversation began, and as you'll see, <laughs> uh, just kind of flew. We're starting uh, work with the Actors Workshop of Ithaca, doing primarily a, a scene study class, yeah. which is something they haven't had before. They've had three classes, taught by Eliza Van Court, Katie Spallone, David Kosak, um, which basically do the Meisner technique. There's going to be a few people out there who don't know the Meisner technique, so we should probably have that explained to them. But what's the basis and the reason, actually, for bringing you in at this particular time to do a scene study in a class that is, as far as I can tell, essentially intake and reaction? <laughs> True. Um, I'm a Meisner actor and a Meisner teacher, and... I developed over my 20-year teaching career um, some exercises to fill a gap in the Meisner logic of exercises. They're five-finger exercises. Um, What do you mean by five-finger exercises? um, An actor has five primary tools in their toolkit. First, you have your voice, then you have your body. These aren't in a particular order, actually, but you have your vocal instrument, whereby you sing, speak, hum, grunt, make noises. Um, you have your physical instrument where you occupy time and space on stage. You have to move in a theatrical context, meaning you enter and walk on stage or you do cartwheel wheels and backflips or dance or any other movement logic you can think of. Next, we have the actor's imagination because to enter what we call the imaginary space, you need to exercise uh, what is in many young people a very flabby muscle. Many actors are very flabby muscle. When you're five years old, your imagination is brilliant. You can do anything. You can believe you're Luke Skywalker or the Little Mermaid or whatever we chose to play as a kid. So when your mother told you to come inside now, you actually became indignant because she was violating that you were going to conquer the sea witch. (laughs) Um, Many years ago, I was one of the 300 jobs I had around my theater career, I worked for a group in the city called Puppetronics. They were those giant puppets and you wear them like with, you know, on a backpack and they're like 10 feet tall and you have like broomsticks for arms and you're you're working. You're in a crowd yeah, with really. a big thing over you yeah. and you're, you're a giant puppet going down a parade or in the street. That gets heavy, hot and sweaty after a while, isn't it? It's paying work. <laughs> <laughs> and the woman who ran the group said to us, don't go up to small children. Stay, take clear of them because they can't effectively discern imagination and reality a lot of the time. And you're real mm. to them and you're scary. Um, at any rate, there's the, the voice, the body, the imagination, which we have to believe on a you know sane level, never losing sight of the fact that it's a play and these are costumes and that's an audience. We have to buy into an imagined reality because that's how the audience assesses our performance, whether they're satisfied. Do I believe that that actor is living that out as if it was really happening? And and the measure of that is uh, engaged by the imagination and then, of course, to a healthy degree, the temperament. 
And that's the main thing that I think the Meisner exercise focuses on, is the exercise of the temperament. Six primary flavors of emotional value. And yes, my wife is a psychiatric nurse, and she her books have confirmed that I'm, I'm on the right path with this, as, I, as a layperson explain it. That we have joy and sorrow, we have fear and outrage, a word I prefer to anger, and we have desire and revulsion. And just about any feeling, any human emotion we experience can, no matter what the verbiage, be fit into one of those six dimensions. And frankly, in the end, there's only one emotional value. There's being available to feel about the world as you experience it, which most of us must edit to function in the civil society. You can't punch somebody because they hurt your feelings. You have to restrain your behavior. You can't always act impulsively on what you feel. There's what you feel and there's what you do with it. Um, And then the last, of course, is the brain. You have to be able to analyze a circumstance, a character, uh, a conflict, a script. You have to be able Mm -hmm. to, to extract this functional logic from a play script so that you can make the acting choices that will then make it live. Anyway, that's what Meisner exercises. Those, 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 in some varying degree, those five dimensions of being an actor. But what it didn't do was it didn't introduce the script to the actor in a way that I felt served both the playwright and the actor. You did say something which I, I do want to touch on a little bit. Your wife being a psychiatric nurse is... Uh raises something that I've had in the back of my head for a while, which I don't think I've actually ever mentioned to anybody else. For an aware actor, for some, an analytical actor, and I'm sure that's the the majority of most actors, the study of being or getting into characters that are not you, characters that are foreign, characters that are of different age, maybe different gender, different experience, is that not also a psychological investigation or a journey that is comparable to psychiatric investigation on its own? Um, psychiatry is a big word. Um, I, it's funny, I, I, I knew actors that when I was studying were reading Jung and Freud because they wanted to understand the psychology of this all. And I would say, first of all, take a step back about, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand miles from the planet Earth and look at the seven and change billion people sitting on it and ask yourself, how, how different are they really from themselves when you get that far back? We have a commonality of human experience, whether you were raised in you know, the, the Hunza region of the Slavic countries or in the outskirts of Shentai province in China or the Deep South or in Canada. Yes, you're going to have different emphases in human experience and uh, values will be different, perspectives of the world will be different, but in the end, in the end, seven billion people are people, all people. And so the first step for me is not to get analytical by thinking psychology. It is to think, what is my common experience with this person? And they're like a Venn diagram. There's always some overlap Uh between me and any character. Second of all, I would disabuse the public, you know, through you, of the notion that you become another character. You don't become another character. You simply take dimensions of your own personality and emphasize those and de-emphasize others. And you become, to the audience, you invent an illusion of being someone else, but you never lose sight of the fact that you're you. I would say that is the difference between acting and insanity. And, you know, having trained actors for many years and been around a lot of actors, there are actors who who are confused about the boundary called the imaginary space. 
that when you step mm -hmm. into the imaginary space, the rules of how you interact with another human being are now different. I'm allowed to, you know, call you an ignorant cunt. And there are no consequences when I step back out of the space. Right. I'm allowed to be hurt by you. I'm allowed to hurt you emotionally. And I would argue that you must, you're going to swim into the deep water. You have to be prepared to accept that. And there are actors who fervently disagree with me. Um, there are people who are not psychologically equipped to go, to swim that deep out into the water. I mean, I only go so deep. At a certain point, I get a little testy and want to swim back towards shore. Um, you familiar with the, the performer Bjork? I am aware of who she is. She's an Icelandic rock pop star. Right. And she was in a film maybe 10, 12 years ago called Dancer in the Dark. And she'd never acted in a play before, but she was an out-there performance artist. And I saw the film, and it's one of the performances that will stay with me for the rest of my life. It's profound. And the ending 10 minutes is gut-wrenchingly horrific. And I squirmed in my seat watching. I'm going to tell you what happened. You should go see the movie. Uh, it's not a great film, but her performance is remarkable because she swam all the way out to the deepest part of the ocean. And she came back. And then after she made the film, she said she would never do it again. And I understand why. Because it, she had to confront her own violent death. Mm -hmm. Using, okay. you know, an actor confronts the imaginary circumstance of the play. You say, well, what if this happened to me? And most of us like to keep a solid toehold in reality. I'm going to imagine this to be so. And... Our central nervous system does not know the difference between an imagined impulse and a real one. That's a, that's a clinical fact. If you imagine biting into a lemon, you can make yourself salivate and there ain't no lemon. Right. You can trick your nervous system into feeling something, both sensually as well as, that's why sense memory in, in the, other, the other branches of method is so, right. you know, such right. a foundational in, in Strasbourg. I had a guest on here uh, last year, Susie Easter, who was talking about acting for all five senses. And she, yeah. I, I asked her what that meant, and she said, think about biting into an apple. Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm assuming everybody, you know, who was paying attention, automatically started to salivate, mm -hmm. and they could create that feeling or that sensation or that experience of biting into that apple. This is exercising the muscle of your imagination. It is a powerful muscle. It's possibly the most powerful muscle in your body. Mm. It's a conceptual muscle. Um, but anyway, back to the character. Um, yeah. You are always, always using parts of yourself. If I have to play somebody greedy, well, I had an epiphany when I was studying my new work. I, I had spent much of my life trying to be a saint, trying to persuade the world that I was this good human being who, who didn't feel bad things and, and was above certain behavior. It's very waspy. Why were you trying to do that? Uh, that's the culture I grew up in, is that you have a better self and you live up to that better self, you know. And these are the values of my culture and therefore I would never lust after that woman's body or I, I would never steal money like that. I would never do that. And yet what happened was I, I came to realize it was a big lie. I am human. I am selfish. I am greedy. I am horribly vain. I'm insecure. Um, it, one of the examples that made it really clear to me is that when I was in my 20s, I, I went home and I stayed in my parents' house for a couple of weeks. And I would stay up into the wee hours of the morning watching movies. And then I would, like, two and three in the morning, I would come downstairs and have to walk through the kitchen. And I was afraid to look at the windows. Because I was afraid there'd be somebody in the window. Ah, that's you've seen the, too many creepy movies. That, that's is, what that is the power of the imagination. Yeah. Exactly. Getting back to uh, the Meisner class that you're, you're about to... Uh teach scene study mm -hmm. 
in a sense, it seems, and, and here's, here's my, my dumb question, which I, I hope you will unravel. Having gone through several semesters of Meisner training myself mm-hmm. and learning how to analyze how I react immediately in the moment, accessing those emotions, which I don't really want to go to right then because I'm on stage with somebody mm-hmm. and, you know, he's bigger than I am or she's really, really cute, and I'm attracted to her, all right? And I have automatic things in my body that tell me I cannot be, I cannot insult this person because he'll kill me, mm-hmm. or I can't say anything to her because she'll think I'm a complete slime ball. And here I am being encouraged to, to say, you know, oh my God, you're huge and black and you scare me, or you're really, really cute and I want to touch you in, in, in strange places. Um, and this is what we learn to access these immediate gut feeling, gut reactions, mm-hmm. okay? All of a sudden, you're presented with a script, mm-hmm. which, as you said before, limits your, or let's put it this way, encapsulates your, your choice of response. So you have a limited response. You have a dictated response. Taking your gut reaction and molding it to that response, how do you justify the conflict that comes out because if the line is one thing and your gut reaction is completely something else, you now have to adjust it to that particular line that the playwright has written. Meisner training should ideally teach people that once you step across the line into the imaginary space, to reiterate, the rules are different. I'm allowed to be afraid. I'm allowed to be a racist. Um, I've done the play version of To Kill a Mockingbird twice, and the second time I was Bob Ewell, and I had to say the line, I saw that nigger rutting on my mayella. Now, if that line's to be effective, I have to allow the little tiny corner of my insecure, neurotic, easily threatened, or emasculated, white, um, privileged self say the truth of that moment. Now, I'm not going to go into the generality of, well, we're all racist, but look, I'm human. And just like you said, there's a big guy across from me, he's black and I'm frightened. That's not a politically correct statement. And I have to believe that once I step across the line into that space, and this is part of an actor's training and understanding that you have the right to act authentically in a way that would not be appropriate in real life. That's one. And the, the Meisner logic is about training the temperament so that you're comfortable with it. And you must become very facile at stepping back and forth across that line. Meaning... I can step out of the exercise and talk about it and say, yeah, that was really awful. And, you know, the audience has a bullshit meter. They know when I'm acting that versus when I passionately mean it. One of the greatest compliments I ever got as an actor, one of the best compliments, was after To Killing Mockingbird, uh, uh, an audience member said, I truly hated you. And and it was a a wide-eyed, shocked reaction because this person knew me. And they saw Mm -hmm. me do that on stage and they hated me. Yeah. Um kind of a nice compliment because that means I got a little deeper out into the water of allowing myself permission to own a very real dimension of fear and hatred mm-hmm. on stage and then paste it under the circumstance. So many, when you go to hear a concert, a p- piano concert, you don't go to hear a pianist play five finger exercises, do you? No. So how does a pianist make the transition between da 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 How do they make the transition? Well, you have notes on a page and dynamic markings, right? Yeah. And those are pretty rigid, really. I mean, there's some room, some latitude for interpretation. And we both know that a script doesn't have such rigidity. An actor can add 
a great deal of dimension to a script, and it's the wise playwright in my mind who has learned to recognize that you are giving a very wide berth to an actor, and yet at the same time, you are defining some boundaries. In this scene, this must be the problem between these two people, because that is what this text will support and will be supported by that choice. Um, mm. And yet, put two actors in a play doing that scene, and then tomorrow, put two different actors in that play doing the scene. It's going to be different. It can't be the same. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So there is a, a, a strange latitude of interpretation, like a, a breathing organism. Um, how many productions of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf have there been in Ithaca? I know of three. I was in one of them. And one was at the kitchen, mm -hmm. and then one was done by Ross Harstead. Yeah, uh, that was Aaron just Westwood. last year. I remember yeah. that, yes. Yeah. 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 So yeah. that play has been interpreted hundreds and hundreds of times by hundreds and hundreds of people. And we can, I suppose, turn this into sports and say, well, this production was better than this production. But it, it's a fruitless argument. It's a different production. It's a different and production. And some, some of them are going to be better, and some of them... But that's the thing about theater. That's the one thing I love about theater above everything else, especially being a playwright. Once my plays get done, all right, you can do it, all right? I can, give it, I can give it to Craig McDonald, and Craig McDonald can go out there and do his interpretation of whatever I've written. Mm -hmm. I can give it to, oh, let's say Greg Bostwick. Mm -hmm. He'll do a completely different one. Yeah. So the same play starts to take on separate personalities. I challenge completely. It's not completely different. There have to be certain functions of George and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Um, things have to happen for the story occur. Mm -hmm. George has to occupy certain emotional experiences to a greater or lesser degree for the story to unfold in a satisfying factor. Well, a it has to be truthful. Yes, but it also has to be the same story told by different people. Right. It's still the same story. Well, two people telling the same joke. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. a good, good metaphor. Uh, but there was another point in this that I want. Oh, yes. You can't negotiate an aesthetic experience. If you and I walk into the theater and sit side by side and watch Count Me In down at the kitchen, which is playing... Which right, I saw last night. Which I saw Thursday. We may have remarkably different experiences. And, you know, this is a, a joke I love to tell um, civilians, as I call them. <laughs> um, nothing no, nothing uh, uh, negative really intended by that. Just There's a we distinction. Get we, we get, get it. it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, is, is that I'll go to see a film or a play. And I'll be with a group of friends who are not theater people. And I become very quiet right afterwards. Now, part of that is that I'm just digesting the experience. I don't like to walk out of the play and just start yammering away about it. I want it mm -hmm. to sit. Furthermore, I'm with people who don't think the way I do. Exactly. They haven't yeah. watched hundreds and hundreds of hours of actors acting and rehearsing the way I have. And, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. patting myself on the back. It's just different life experience. And so I bring a different experiential agenda to what I watch. And I have very strong feelings about these things, obviously. I've invested yes. 40 years of my life in it. Um, well, been there. Yeah, Believe me. Yeah, 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 yeah I understand. Yeah. So what will happen is they'll be chatting away. Oh, I thought it was... This character was... Oh, this actor was so... I love with the lights. Oh, and they're going and tacking about it. And then they'll suddenly notice that I'm not talking. And they'll say, Oh, Craig, you're the theater person. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And I demure. And sometimes they take the hint and sometimes they don't and they press me. Yeah. And often, you know, the worst case scenario is what pops out of my mouth is something like, it was a piece of shit. There was no conflict. I could have cared less about any of those characters. Nobody knew what the fuck they were doing up there. What was that design? It made the actors look like a bunch of crippled hunchbacks. And, and they will all be aghast and in shock. And then some bold soul will on some occasion say, no, that's not what happened. That's not what you thought. And I want to slap them. Or you get 
the condescending, well, you're a theater person. You look at things differently than the rest of us. <laughs> as as, as if that explains us. all of our psychoses. Yeah, and I love to compare notes. Don't misunderstand me. Oh, yeah. I, I love to say, well, this is what I saw. What did you see? That It's not that I don't want to talk about it, but I do have a little once bitten, twice shy sensibility about mm-hmm. discussing theater right after a show with non-theater people in particular. Theater right. people, it's different because there, there's an already an ease and an understanding about, hey, I was sitting, you know, you know the light bulb joke about actors, right? How many actors that take change the light bulb? It's How many? Two. One is up on stage in a heavy, sweaty costume on a very awkward piece of scenery, reaching to screw that light bulb in as perfectly as he can. The other one is sitting in the audience where it is dark and anonymous and safe and thinking, well, I could do that better. <laughs> and, and as long as you understand that dynamic, I can have a conversation with you. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, okay. not how, that's not how I would do it. Back to the class. This, this mm-hmm. business of a character and how you extract a character from the script is, is a really interesting challenge. This, these exercises evolved partly because I, there was a gap in the Meisner logic. I really felt that there was never a really clear introduction, like a, like a cosmic handshake between the actor in training and the playwright and what a playwright does and how they do it. And so what what we all got instead, and I got this when I got a BFA at Ithaca College, and I got this at Rutgers when I was at the conservatory there, is that you're given a teacher who gives you a script analysis class, and it's a top-down class. We look at the theme and the, you know, the inciting incident and the rising action and the crisis and the climax and the denouement. And we're getting a lesson in structure. And it, yeah. It, that's, yeah, and that's good. I, I think... An actor should absolutely have that. However, th- this is the way I tell this, is, is I, I would get so excited. I mean, literally, I had this thing that my, my brain would become so hyperactive. It's like my ears were hot from too much blood in my head. And I would walk out of the class. I'm so excited. Oh, my God, the analysis, the script. Oh, I get it, the conflict. Oh, yeah. And I'd open the script, and there are these lines on the page. And I would go, well, what, what do these lines have to do with that? I don't get it. And I was just dense, is what it was. And, you know, you do plays, you do plays, and you begin to pick up, oh, right, that's a cutoff. So I should probably stop you from talking where the hyphen is at the end of your line. And you start to figure that shit out. But you understand we, most of us, in my experience, back into that. And here's how this happened. Twenty-something years ago, I was teaching at Cornell, and I was teaching an intro to acting class. And it was Labor Day, and I thought I'd have the day off. We'd had classes the week before, and so it's Monday, and it's Labor Day, and I'm thinking, oh, great, I have a day off. And then Sunday night, somebody says, uh, you know, you have to teach tomorrow. I'm like, what? I do? I didn't give an assignment. And I had just done a Mamet play, and Mamet writes what I call a gritty brick-and-mortar urban poetry. I've done American Buffalo, so I know exactly you, that's what right, you're I talking saw about. That, yeah. And yeah. so the, I, I, I joke that yeah. a line, and, and this is probably not an exaggeration, a line in a Mamet script can go like this. Wait. Wait, no, 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 I told, please, please, just no, no, please, okay. That's a line in a mammoth play. Yes. Now, if you have lived in conflict with people with stakes, you understand that that's humanly true. People do talk like that. But when you look at it as words on a page, you don't understand, maybe as an actor, that there are 12 actions in that line. And that you don't understand that when there is an interruption that there are two fundamental kinds of interruption. Now, you're a playwright. What two kinds of interruption do you think I'm getting at? Let's play a guessing game. Uh, a cutoff line. 
where okay. one person is speaking and somebody else talks over him. Okay. Cuts you, off the end of his line. You're, you're thinking way small. I'm thinking way small. Way bigger. Way bigger. Two kinds of interruption. The theater burns down. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're thinking too far outside the box. <sighs> Hit me. What does an ellipsis mean? An ellipsis means... Um, dot, dot, dot. Uh, the line trails off. And what does that mean? Sort of means it's that the character can't finish his thought. Is that the only thing it means? Or can it mean more than that? It can also mean that Oh, character... fuck, wait, wait. I just did it. It's a self-interruption. It's a self... Okay. Now, I've just taken that idea of an ellipsis, with which most actors call a trailing off. And I said, wait a minute. Is that the only way that happens? I was going to say the actor, the, the character, uh, he hit a realization and changed their train of There's thought. There's an epiphany. An epiphany, yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I would say they can remember something. Give me a, a synonym for the word elephant. Pachyderm. Very good. You're faster than most people. But you know what you did? You self-interrupted. You went into your head and you had to think of the word. Have you ever not been able to come up with a word? Oh, my so God, I, all I, the time. Okay, that's another form of self-interruption. Do you understand is that what happens is that actors tend, with these dynamics, to take the path of least resistance. Oh, that's a trailing off, so I'll trail off. And they don't think about it again. And they don't understand that the playwright put that ellipsis in there mm. for a reason. And you haven't given it one second of thought. Two, a hyphen. Now, there's no playwright police. Nobody tells you that these are the rules. Some people write double hyphens. Some people don't use ellipses at all. This is such a pet peeve. I know. It doesn't matter. All I was in a rehearsal last night. People were looking at my script all together for the first time. And I had a line. And all of a sudden, the last four words had brackets around them. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means the next actor talks over those lines. Okay, that's because one way to do it. How does Carol Churchill write that? I can't bring it. She puts an asterisk in the middle of the line before yours. That is your cue to start speaking. How does Landry Wilson uh, yes. write right. that? He writes it as parallel columns down the page. And right. you must time it out in Balm and Gilead. Three columns on one page. Mm-hmm. Three conversations. Yeah. Guy sitting at the counter, um, a guy in a booth with his prostitute girlfriend, and a guy standing in the door talking to someone we can't see off stage. And at some point we have the prostitute, the, the pimp saying, why so blue, honey? The, the, the truck driver at the counter saying, I'll have the blue plate special. And the guy in the door goes, like that blue car. And so we get blue, blue, blue. The playwright is exercising his poetic license and it's deliberate. And to me, the smart actor understands that is deliberate. But if you haven't thought very carefully about what does it mean to overlap, First trap of overlapping. And by the way, this is one of the exercises. There are 32 of these exercises, and one of them is the overlapping scene. And so the first thing you say to an actor when you give them the overlapping scene is, so, what's the conflict here? And 99% of the time, George, they say, oh, we're not listening to each other. And I say, fuck you, you're not listening to each other. You're actors. You're always listening to each other, and the exception would prove the rule, but that's not an exception. So the first eight scenes were written in a panic Sunday night before teaching a Monday morning acting class. And they are repetition. Because if you've done Meisner, you've heard people say, that's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. And so the the lines all repeat each other in a way. Exactly. And so I say, so you know the difference. You've heard repetition. You know when it's just mechanical. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. And you know when it becomes dialogue. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. That's a brown sweater. When people are actually interacting, though the words aren't changing. Right. I can make that's a brown sweater into a one-act play. You and probably that's what, could. That's what I challenge the actor to do. The very, there are three pre-exercises, by the way. One of them, five-line scene, 
neutral scene, A, B, A, B, A. Right. And the lines are, it's cold. That's it. It's cold, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold. And I say, now make that into a play. And they have to think, well, what's the conflict? They have to think. And this is why I didn't like neutral scenes when I was started teaching. It's because they're so amorphous and you don't have a play to help you make choices. The actor then becomes the playwright because you have to make up a conflict. You have to make up a character point of view of the world, uh, the, other cir- uh, the other character and the circumstance. You have to make up an artistic journey because it's not implied. You don't have anything to... You know, it doesn't have to fit in like... Um, Another example I like to give is, is if you're playing the woodsman in Snow White, your job is to take the script from part G through part H to part I, and that's it. And then you're gone. You're out of the story. Now, take away the rest of the alphabet. What do G, H, and I mean? They mean nothing. It's a neutral scene. There's no context. So right. that you, the actor, have actually three times the work to do. But actors like them because they feel liberated. They're not constrained by a script. And it has its values. What I did, I married the neutral scene to the idea of what I call uh, text opportunities. So the first one is all repeating lines. The second one is... Um, on Stage Off Stage is produced and hosted by George Sapien and aired on WRS Why do you stop them from talking? Does it have to be the other can, Does it have to happen fast? Does it have to be loud? Do they have to be angry? Airtimes are Tuesdays no. at 6.30 p.m. I mean, and Thursdays at 7.30 a.m. New shows are every second and fourth week yes, of the I month. With the depends, the depends on the character. Well, I could keep talking while you have that hand up and you're looking over, and that will say something completely different about my character in response to your character. It's attitude, it's respect, it's superiority. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. On stage, on stage. Because the director, ideally, is the basketball coach tossing the ball up and setting that playing field for you. So, yes, an actor can be a dick and refuse to be cut off. You have to make an agreement. You're listening to that. WRFI walking shuts you up, and that's an understanding. And then I have to authentically do that to you, and you have to authentically react. And that's where your understanding, your temperament, and personalizing that moment becomes key. And you know, and it's what's really funny about acting is that probably seventy-five percent of it is instinctive. You never think about it once you've been doing it a long time. The technique, the the, the old saying goes, the toolkit is for when you can't figure it out, where it doesn't work, which is why I like these exercises. Problems are just opportunities in the work clothes? You got it, sir. Did you steal that from me? I did. (laughs) I got it right off your website, which is craigmcdonaldactor.com anyway for everybody who wants to go check this out. And that immediately brought back a line to me that I've always had a Mm -hmm. problem with. It was my opening line in uh, uh, American Buffalo. Which is? Fucking Ruthie. Well, what just happened? Re- repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. I come walking in. I break the action between the other two. And I never found the proper way to do it. I did it two dozen different ways. Did you, you say that once or you say it over and over again? I say it over and over and over. I come walking in going, fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie, fucking Ruthie, fucking well, Ruthie. What do you want? What's stopping you from getting it? Exactly. Who are these people to you? Um, you, you can argue that in, in eccentric character choice would be that you're arguing with yourself, which to me is an anti-theatrical choice for an actor to make. It introverts, and what we want to do is extrovert. And so I would immediately give myself an imaginary listener, and literally as the actor and as the character, no, fucking George, fucking, 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 fucking George. Do you, do you believe this? you fucking believe this? I'm talking to God. I'm talking to my friend Bob over there. I'm, I'm extroverting the behavior. 
But I'm also creating a very real imaginary circumstance. You fucking George, fucking George. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Just pay no attention. I was talking to... Never mind. You understand? I've created a reality that's a beautiful basket so I never have to think, I never have to worry. And of course, you know, I call something a Wegmans moment. Oh, please explain that. (laughs) For an actor. It's the moment about 10 days after the play closed and I'm standing in line in Wegmans and I'm looking about, you know, Elvis's face on, on Jupiter. What? And then I go, <laughs> fuck, that's what I should. Oh, ah, now I get the fucking moment. You know, it, it happens every show. You have a wake. I call it a yes. wake moment. Mm-hmm. And they repeat on you like bad Slovakia for years. So when does this class you're teaching begin? Where? How do we get involved? Uh, how do we become students? And uh, <laughs> yeah, pitch it. January 31st, first section, six weeks, Saturday morning. It's three hours. It's active. It's fun as hell. And that's the point is to me, anytime anybody said the words text or script analysis to me, my eyes glazed over because it just sounded academic and like Latin or something. And it's not. This Funny, is that, that's, that's a thing that gets me unbelievably excited. When somebody says script analysis, I just, I just start salivating because I'm weird. You're weird, George. I agree. I, I, but I like being I weird. like the weird. I like weird. No, this is something that's designed to be hands-on active. We're not going to talk about text analysis. We're going to do these exercises. The first eight, and then the second eight, and then the third eight, we get into abstractions. The third eight involve things like, what is the fourth wall? And what does the fourth wall mean to the actor and the character and the audience? Um, What does it mean to act stage directions? What does it mean to act where, to me, there are certain things a playwright absolutely has purview over. Is that the word I'm looking for? Purview. Purview over. Um, You can tell me what to say. You can write in parentheses and italics. You may write an action. And you may write a reaction. You may tell me that I react to something and you may characterize that in some way. Everything beyond that is for the set designer and the stage manager and the director. And I'll read them. But then I mostly just cross them out. Like Mm -hmm. Eugene O'Neill, three pages of stage directions before the first line. Okay, granted, I'm reading yeah. the play. Maybe I need him to set the scene for me. But frankly, he, his father was an actor and he didn't trust actors. So he writes you, George Bernard Shaw, same thing. He, he does yeah. not trust yeah. actors. And my feeling is I'll respect your central role, not, not sole role, but central role as mm-hmm. a playwright, if you will respect the fact that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And I, as an actor, despite, you know, David Mamet hates actors, you know, because he, they fuck up his play. They get in the way of his words. And my action is, then you, you're just a, a megalomaniac. You're just somebody who's a control freak. And I can understand that, and that's your right to be that, but I don't want to work with you. I want to work with somebody who respects the fact that invention comes to the mind at play and play happens between collaborative theater artists. And that's the heart and soul of what I'm teaching. Uh, I want to to kick over uh, to a different subject, one that um, totally fascinates me. Mm -hmm. Mask work. Mm -hmm. You've done work with masks. You teach masks. Mm -hmm. I love mask work. You're putting on a new face, a new personality, a new kind of being. And you are, you're probably going to argue with me about this, whatever, but it takes over your entire personality and kind of shoves it almost out of the way. And now you've got to work through... You're talking magic talk now. It's not I'm, magic. I'm not talking magic talk. I'm, I'm talking it takes about... takes your personality over. No, it doesn't. It, well, it, it turns you into something that you're not originally yeah. in, in a drastic Dumbo? way. Did I see Dumbo? The movie Dumbo. The cartoon Disney yep. Dumbo thing. Yep. 
Yeah, with I was the, probably with the horribly s- racist number with the crows. Y- oh yes, I do remember that. Okay, yeah, do you yeah, remember yeah. what happens at the end of that number when Dumbo is in the tree and he can't believe he got up there and you, the mouse is trying to persuade him? What happens? Uh, I don't remember that. The mouse goes to one of the crows and plucks a feather and hands it to Dumbo. And says, "Hey, Dumbo, this is the magic feather. If you have this in your trunk, you can fly." That's a mask. If you ask a three-year-old, can you be invisible? What might happen is this. He slaps his hands over his eyes. Because the three-year-old, in their sense of reality, believes if they can't see you, then you can't see them. Okay. That's not magic. That's just psychology. That's just a, a nascent psychology and relationship with self and other. That's imagination. That That is, yeah, a distortion of reality right. with the imagination. Okay, so when you put a mask on an actor, and by the way, you don't use text when you do mask work with me. That's the other thing. We take away the two things young actors immediately gravitate to. Clever things to say mm-hmm. and their face. Like John Cleese says in one of the Monty Python sketches, well, I, while the other person's talking, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what face I should pull on my next line, you know. And so you put the mask on, and then the gift of what you're getting at, the gift of this moment is you have a mirror, and you have your back to it, and you've chosen the mask, and you put it on the front of your head, and you can't see what you look like. That's another thing about it that, that drives me crazy. Right. I love the idea of working with masks, and I'm fascinated about doing it because it's to me, the technique is different. There's very few words. I've become something different. I have to use the shape of my head. I have to use my body positioning. I have to translate what it is I'm feeling and thinking in a completely different way mm-hmm. than just throwing words at my stage partner. Mm-hmm. And yet, I don't know what I look like. I know what the mask looks like, but I don't know what I look like with the mask on. Can you play that harp? Uh, probably badly. Thank you. Good answer. Same thing with your physical instrument. That's all that is, you know. Um, I have a demonstration I do, and I, there's a video I have had it up on YouTube for a while of you know getting people to do this. Put your hands on your knees, and then put your right hand on your nose, and your left hand on your right ear. Now put your hands on your knees, put your left hand on your nose, and your right hand on your opposite ear. So you're crossing your hand over and touching your ear while one hand touches your nose, and then you alternate like this, right? Then I say, now do this fast. And most people have never done this. And so they look like morons <laughs> for about three seconds. And I say, okay, y'all look like morons. Thank you. You're willing to suffer being foolish. That means you're ready to learn. You're, you're not obsessed with looking good and having instant gratification and getting rewarded immediately for, frankly, little suffering or effort. Secondly, recognize that if you do this slowly for 60 seconds, you will be brilliant for the rest of your life. And that's a metaphor for the acquisition of skill. And one of the first things you have to teach actors in a training program, like, you know, where we used to teach, Mm -hmm. is how much they don't know. Because they have been rewarded and lauded and praised and had their butt cheeks kissed by everyone telling them how talented they are, when frankly, most of them really don't have but a few inches of skill. Their skill is very shallow, you know. They may be clever, they may have great instincts, you know, and maybe they're trained as a dancer, maybe they had singing lessons, and maybe they played the lead in every play all through high school, as I did. I was one of, you know, I was a boy, and the boys got cast. So I was in I was the president of the drama club and I was in plays for four years. So I was on stage a lot. But I didn't know fuck all about acting. And the problem is is 
is acting when it's done right just looks like people being people. And so it's really deceptive. So your awkwardness, that sensation of, mm-hmm. oh my God, I can't rely on my face. I can't rely on words. I've stripped away your two greatest crutches. You're now a, a one-legged man with no crutches, you know, and... I, by the way, feel your pain because... Well, I, I feel like I've been unmoored from my basic identity. You have been... You've been taken out of your comfort zone. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you don't... You're not a physical artist. On the other hand, there are clowns I know. If they, you handed them a script that you'd written, they would panic because you have taken them out of theirs. Mm, you yeah. see? it's. I told you there are five skill sets. There's the physical instrument, the vocal instrument, the temperamental instrument, the imagination, and then the ability. You have to have a sharp mind. You have to be able to, you know, study human behavior in the world, understand our common humanity and all the things that make people be heroes or slaves or victims or geniuses. You know, this mm-hmm. Cumberbatch in his movie, which I haven't seen yet. Oh, Imitation Game? And mm-hmm. I have great admiration for his, for his skill, but he has to play a genius. So what does he do? He has to emphasize certain facets of his personality, de-emphasize other aspects of his personality. He has a script, obviously, that supports these choices. It's like dancing a tango, really. The actor and the playwright, though the, the words on a page may be a static thing physically, it is still a dance. It is still a dance. And I love a good dance partner. Craig McDonald, it has been, and I can't believe how much fun this has been. Oh my gosh. Um, I I've talked to you finally. I, I want to do this for another hour. Um, we will. But hopefully you'll be back on the show at some point. Thank you. And thank you so much.